recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christogenia.org. This is Christogenia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Saturday, December 20th, 2014. And tonight we have something a little different. We have pastors Don Elmore and Mark Downey of the Fellowship of God's Covenant people here with us tonight to discuss Christmas, the merchandise, the idolatry over merchandise, the covetousness, the merchants crying or gloating over the amount of buying done that season, the people going into debt, long-term debt for temporary gratification, the suicide and general disappointments due to unfulfilled expectations. All of the social problems reflecting the underlying problems with the consumer culture are wrapped up every Christmas season and handed over to the devil. True Christians should not participate in the Jewish mercantile frenzy and absolute pagan idolatry, which is called Christmas. However, as Paul exhibits in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and as I attempted to present here last night, Christians can indeed walk us in line, attending the gatherings of family and friends where they may attempt to spread the truth of the gospel. And, and that's what I believe we should be doing. We are here to discuss Christmas tonight with Pastors Elmore and Downey, and here is Mark Downey. Thank you, Bill. Well, I'd like to open with a prayer, if I may. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you bless this discussion tonight and blesses whomsoever that hears it. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Guide us in gleaning the wisdom of your word. Give us the right understanding and how we can best reconcile this thing called Christmas. And let the power of divine awakening assuage our brethren to their calling and duties as it relates to tonight's subject, and the angst and frustrations our brethren struggle with every year at this time. We pray for true Israel walking the walk according to God's will. We thank you that your mercy endureth forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. Amen. Praise Christ. Now, um, before we get started on uh, this huge subject of Christmas, um, this last week um, commemorated the um, Battle of Blood River on the 16th, and I believe that was uh, Tuesday of this week. And every year, in some small way, that's something that uh, our church tries to remember, uh, knowing that our brethren in South Africa have somewhat forgotten their own covenant that they made with God. But I'd just like to take 10 minutes or so, and it it will segue into uh, Christmas, Uh, and I'll 
turn it over to Don after oh about ten minutes here, and I'm I'm just taking from my article the Battle of Blood River. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, uh, just the story that some of our people may not be familiar with or haven't heard before. You know, one of the marks of Israel would be that we would become explorers, having command of the seas, and would colonize the desolate places. In 1498, Vasco da Gama would sail his flagship around the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, for a commercial trade route to India. Well, the only civilized people who spent much time ashore were the survivors of shipwrecks. In 1662, the Cape settlement numbered 250 white people, whom nearly half were servants of the Dutch East India Company. The company made serious effort to encourage immigration, and by 1707, the population was about 1,800 people, owning about 1,100 slaves. They were slaves and they were white. But the modern Afrikaners are descended from the servant class who were freed at that time, along with about 200 French Huguenots. And being discharged from the Cape, were sent out into the frontiers to settle the land. The commercial interest had no vision in the New Netherlands of South Africa. By 1795, they increased to about 1,500 and regarded South Africa as their only home. Half of these people were the trek boars living further into the interior. And within a few years, it became possible to take occupation of 6,000 acres for semi-nomadic farming and ranching. Well, during these years of prosperity, South Africa was attracting the attention of British evangelicals who were pushing to free the non-white races. In 1835, these Britain pastors passed an insane piece of civil rights legislation called Ordinance 50, in which all policies of racial segregation were banned. The Negro was given full citizenship to vote. Severe taxes were imposed. And the prohibition of their native language, Afrikaans, and the stipulation that any repeal or amendment could only be done in England. This law of race traders left the Afrikaners, the white Christians, feeling that they had lost control over their lives and destiny to a foreign power arrayed against them on the side of those who were not of their race. Missionaries from the Anglican Church, headed by the Queen, preached a radical pro-Negro policy advocating interracial marriage. Well, the Vortrekkers, or Boers, knew that the blasphemy of institutionalized miscegenation would doom their culture. They defied the demands of the British to return to the coastal cities, and those within proximity to the Cape Colony, unable to survive or comprehend, or comprehend these liberal ideas, abandoned their businesses and farms, which were quickly pilfered by wandering free Negroes and British carpetbaggers grabbing property for their own use. Negro tribes were now pouring into South Africa to take advantage of the British order that no retaliation be taken against blacks 
who raped, looted, and murdered whites. The colonial magistrate actually ordered that the rampaging blacks be considered innocent because if they were treated with tolerance, they would behave properly. Well, a lady by the name of Anna Steenkamp recorded that the British had placed the Negroes on an equal footing with the Christians, contrary to the law of God, so that it was intolerable for any decent Christian to bow down beneath such a yoke. Quote, wherefore we withdrew in order thus to preserve our doctrines and purity. Imbued with this spirit, some 12,000 Afrikaners packed their bags and loaded their covered wagons and left the colony and started the famous great trek into the unknown desolate lands of the north. At the same time, the Zulus were moving south into the same area. Well, being that they were not indigenous to this area, the land could not have been stolen from them. As the treacherous savages received the leader of a group of some 70 unarmed boars in their encampment that evening while feasting and celebrating and signing a treaty ceding the land to the whites, the Zulus butchered every single man. In the months to follow, the Zulus went on the warpath, attacking and killing as many as 500 men, women, and children at several other locations in the Natal area. Well, the Boers were without a leader and immediately elected Andres Pretorius, from which the city Pretoria is named, as their commander general of the wagon trains. Pretorius was a combination of kind of a George Washington and Nathan Bedford Forrest and pro proceeded to avenge the white settlers, their hell, by defeating the Zulu presence in Natal and the organization of a Christian government. Well, Pretorius developed a commando militia of some 468 men in short order and began reconnaissance scouting for the ideal logistics in which to secure the best possible advantage. He received reports that the Zulus were on the hunt to find them. The numbers of Zulus were estimated to be between 10 and 15,000 savages who were born and bred for the purpose of warfare. Their weapons were lethal also, arrows with an accuracy of up to 60 meters and spears and clubs and machetes and hatchets in the hands of trained killers. In contrast, the Boers were farmers, and all they had were primitive, inaccurate, muzzle-loaded flintlock muskets and three old cannons loaded with any kind of scrap metal they could find to serve as shrapnel. Their most valuable military asset was God. Pretorius's inspiration, however, was not in the art of war. No, it was the way he forged and fortified the spirit of his men prior to the battle with a covenant made on December 9th and repeated every evening up to the 16th. Well, the trekkers arrived at Blood River on December 14th and set camp. Within the logger were their 900 oxen, 500 horses, and other livestock. 
three to four thousand Zulu impis, the best of their warriors, after the battle, lay dead. I, if you want to go to my website and read the entire description of the battle, uh, it's there for your reading. But here's the amazing thing. Not one white man or any of his animals were killed. There were only three minor wounds, including Pretorius himself. And as the dust settled from the battle and victory was realized, the men didn't have a big party or celebration, but rather a solemn Thanksgiving service was held. The Afrikaners knew their survival was completely dependent on divine intervention. Blood River has been called the mythical underpinnings of apartheid rule. The Christian Boers did not ascribe the military victory to their armaments. They interpreted the battle as a sign from God. With the battle behind them, they believed even more strongly that a white predominance is the will of God. Well, December 16th is still observed by some Boers as the Sabbath called the Day of the Vow. And on that day, their pioneer ancestors made a pledge to God, which he honored by ordering his angelic legions to assist in the battle between the forces of light and the powers of darkness. South Africa is again facing fearful odds, who, like their forefathers, will be forced to bend their knee and renew themselves as God's covenant people. And I might add, the situation likewise applies to us today. And with that, I will turn it now over to Pastor Elmore. Thank you, Mark, for that very good explanation of the Battle of Blood River. You know, you didn't mention anything about Christmas because it was December 16th when that famous battle was fought, but they didn't celebrate Christmas back then. Nor did the Protestants celebrate Christmas in the United States until around 1817 when it was led by the Universalist Church to try to get Christmas celebrated. It was actually, uh, it failed from 1817 to 1820, but they tried again and tried a different tactic, and that was a secular movement, the social, cultural, and economic movement, which did succeed. The battle was fought December 16, 1838. It was about the time when the first state in the United States made it a state holiday. Many people might be surprised that that state that did that in 1836 was the state of Alabama. Uh, many southern states grabbed on to Christmas, and by 1870, it became a national holiday. Before I continue, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, since I think many of the listeners don't know much about me. I was raised a community in a community Baptist church, which really isn't saying much. Um, we celebrated Christmas and Easter, so as my youth, uh, that's what we celebrated. I also learned that the Jews were God's covenant people. 
that Jesus and all the apostles uh, were Jews, that the early church was made up of Jews, that the Romans crucified Jesus, and that the Jew uh, refused the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. That the Old Testament was the Jews' holy book. I knew nothing about the Talmud and the Kabbalah. And I later found out that Jews had been kicked out of England from 1590 to 1660. That's 370 years. That's a long, long time. When I went to college, I knew that I did not know anything about the Bible. So I went to different churches uh, throughout the land, and I figured one of them was correct. It took me to a small church that was a Calvinistic church, but I joined that church, and they did not celebrate Christmas or Easter. So that was my beginning. It's been a long journey. I've learned more and more things about this holiday, and I've learned more things this year about it. I would have to say, if you go back into the Bible and the history of Israel, you know that Israel split into two kingdoms uh, pretty quickly. It was the house of Judah and the house of Israel. The house of Israel had the wrong king. They had the wrong priest. They had the wrong temple. They had the wrong laws that were kept. They had something else that was wrong. They had the wrong feast days. Their first king, by the name of Jeroboam, made a feast that was similar to Judah's, but he celebrated it on the wrong month. He celebrated on the eighth month and not the seventh. Every king that came in the house of Israel was worse than the one that he that preceded him. Uh, it lasted for 205 years. They had 19 kings, nine dynasties. Seven of the kings were assassinated. One committed suicide. One was killed in battle. One died falling through a latus. Uh, it was disastrous. When you, when you go through this uh, history, did God, did God honor the feast day that they celebrated on the wrong month? Well, the answer is no. From there, I, I found out this week, well, before I get to that, I want to say in the house of Israel, the seventh king was a king by the name of Ahab. And then we find out that uh, they were worshiping the God of Baal. The house of Israel, this was five-sixths of all the Israelites served Baal. They built him an altar. They built him a house. Who was Baal? Well, Baal was many of the names for the sun god. It was the covenant people of God who had split into the northern kingdom who were worshiping Baal. It was not non-Israelites. In fact, it was the vast majority of Israelites who held the true priest of, had the true priest of God hidden in a cave while they outwardly were worshiping the false god Baal. 
Then suddenly in the scriptures, along comes Elijah the prophet. Elijah set up a contest to see who the true God was. He told the house of Israel not to hold two different opinions. I think most of you know what happened in that contest. It was a marvelous thing, but the house of Israel kept on worshiping false gods till eventually they were taken uh, and divorced and set up into the other nations. Uh, this past week, I found something that I did not know happened this past year. Uh, in May and July, there were two things that happened. First was Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, uh, in the basement of the government building, uh, they wanted to celebrate a black mass. What in the world is a black mass? Well, there were some people who were really irate about that. Uh, so it, it got closer and closer to the time of it happening. More and more people got more and more involved. The main people that were upset about it were the Roman Catholics. And I wondered why were the Roman Catholics so upset and most of the Protestants were not that upset. What happens in a black mass? Well, they had the black mass. At the same time, the Roman Catholics had the Eucharist service at their church. And uh, they were very, very irate. A little bit later, Harvard University said that their students were going to have a black mass. Well, that's in the Boston area, Cambridge. Well, the Catholics had another big uproar. And they put so much pressure on them that it was canceled at the last minute. It supposedly went to a restaurant, but it uh, kind of faded out. What is the Black Mass? I did a little bit of research to find out what the Black Mass uh, was. The Black Mass, and the one in Oklahoma City said they had the host from the Catholic Church, an actual consecrated host from the Catholic Church, and they were going to throw it on the floor and stomp on it. That's what made the Roman Catholics so mad. For the Roman Catholics have a doctrine that they call transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic doctrine that the whole substance of the bread and wine changes into the substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Now, there's, I'm going to read you a saying that comes from uh, this book about the Catholics. It says, quote, in ancient ritual blood sacrifices in pagan religions, the worshiper must consume the blood of the victim as a sacrifice. This idea was incorporated in such manner that now the communing believer takes the bread, the body of Christ, into his own flesh, and this the supreme and highest moment of Christian worship. This becomes the central mystery of the Christian's faith and practice, eating the body of Christ. 
Many Catholics believe the priest has magical powers to change a wafer and wine into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Well, now I knew why the Catholics were so upset. The uh, person in charge, of the vicar of Satan in this black mass, said that he got the uh, host from a Catholic who sent it to him. Uh, he was the Catholic was from overseas. Well, anyway, that was really something. Then I thought about what what does this have to do with Christmas, Christ Mass? Well, that's what the word means. The main holiday of sun worship is Christmas. Christmas is the combination of two words, Christ Mass. The last S is dropped as well as the uh, both words, Christ and Mass. It's made into one word. Most Protestants who celebrate this awful holiday don't stop and think what that means. They think that they are celebrating the birthday of their Savior, but they are not. Do Protestants keep the Mass? No then why would they celebrate the Mass of Jesus Christ, which is known as Christmas? Because they're not told that the midnight church service is the Mass of Christ. All they are told is Merry Christmas. I will read you what the King and Queen of England had to say at their coronation in Protestant England before the year 1776. They said, by the grace of God, the king or queen of England, Scotland and Ireland, defender of the faith, do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I do believe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, there is not any transubstantiation of the elements of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever, and that the invocation or adoration of the Virgin Mary or any other saint and the sacrifice of the Mass as they are now used in the Church of Rome are superstitious and idolatrous. Wow, that's the big difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, it's it's this belief. Every every service they have a mass. The priest says the magical words, and if he makes any mistake in in the words, it's it's null and void. The bread or the wine is not changed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the witches do. They have to get the words exact. If the priest gets one word wrong, the wafer does not change into the actual body of Jesus Christ. And you know, the wafer that's used in the Roman Catholic Church is not like what the Protestants use. They use a round wafer. 
breaking the bread actually represents the body of Jesus when it was broken by the cruel beatings and stripes that he suffered the night before his crucifixion. This symbolism is not carried out by serving a round, disc-shaped wafer that is completely whole. The Roman Catholic Savior did not suffer any beatings or strife when one looks at the symbolism of its host. If the use of a round wafer is without scriptural basis, is it possible that we are faced with another example of sun worship influence? After Jesus blessed the elements, they were not changed into his literal flesh and blood, for he literally was still there. He had not vanished away to appear in the form of bread and wine. After he had blessed the cup, he still called it the fruit of the vine, not his literal blood. And since Jesus drank from the cup also, did he drink his own blood? If the wine became actual blood, to drink it would have been forbidden by the Bible. Eating blood was strictly forbidden in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 26 Leviticus 17.10, Deuteronomy 12.16, Deuteronomy 15.23, Leviticus 17.14, Acts 15.20, and other verses. I will read Leviticus 17.14, where it says, quote, For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, you shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. So if the wine is magically turned into the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, which is what the Roman Catholic Church has taught from its beginning, anyone who drinks it will be cut off. When we had the Protestant Reformation, the Catholics reacted with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent proclaimed that the belief in transubstantiation is essential to salvation and pronounced curses on any who would deny it. The council ordered pastors to explain that not only did the elements of the Mass contain flesh, bones, and nerves as a part of Christ, but also a whole Christ. The Catholic Encyclopedia says the dogma of the totality of the real substance, the real presence, means that in each individual species, the whole Christ, flesh and blood, body and soul, Divinity and humanity is really present. The piece of bread, having become Christ, is believed that in offering up, the priest sacrifices Christ. A curse was pronounced by the Council of Trent on any who believe otherwise. They said, if anyone saith that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, let him be anathema. 
But think about this for a minute. Roman Catholics say that no one, I believe that's most of us here, who does not partake of the Roman Catholic transubstantiation mass will not be saved. Wow. The Roman Catholics believe in a church work salvation. It's their mass that saves, not Jesus Christ. And they say that anyone who says that the mass is not a true and proper sacrifice, let them be accursed. They say that we are not saved and that we are cursed by God. Do they really believe that we're Christians? When they take the bread, it's changed into, they think, the actual body of Jesus Christ. They put that wafer into a monstrous in the center, which is a sunbur- has a sunburst design. Before the monstrous, Roman Catholics bow and worship this little wafer as God. The practice is similar to the practices of heathen tribes that worship fetishes. The idea of transubstantiation was not without its problems. I remember going on a young people's class at the Community Baptist Church as a middle schooler. We went to different churches and synagogues each month. This day, we traveled to the local Roman Catholic Church. It was kind of funny as the priest had to genuflex every time he approached the center of the church. He passed by it many times going on his way to show us the answer to many of our questions. I remember the question that was asked about transubstantiation and the young priest's answer. The question was, what happens when there is a crumb that falls to the floor by accident and a mouse by chance eats it? Did the mouse eat God's body? The priest said this was a problem for many centuries. The church believes that even a crumb was believed to contain a whole Christ. The priest told us that the church had even considered what happens if a member accidentally vomited after he had received communion. He even told us that there were meetings in the Catholic history about what to do if a man spilled some of the former wine, but now the blood of Christ, on his beard. Should he have his beard burned, or should that man be destroyed? The Roman Catholic priest admitted that there were some very strange doctrines that accompanied the idea of transubstantiation. The subject is addressed in the general instructions of the Roman Missal, number 280. It says, quote, If a host or any particle should fall, it is to be picked up reverently. If any of the precious blood is spilled, the area where the spill occurred should be washed with water, and this water should then be poured into the sacrium and the sacristy. What in the world is the sacrium? I found out it is the left sink in the sacristy into which water from the cleansing of sacred vessels is poured. It does not drain into the sewer, but goes directly into the ground. 
Even the items used for communion will be washed in these special sinks to make sure the Eucharist crumbs or wine end up going into the ground instead of into the plumbing pipes and down the sewer. For many centuries, because of this belief, the priest only offered the members the bread. The church reasoned that the members were less likely to spill the bread than the wine, so only the priest drank the wine. Now, in most Catholic churches, the priest offers their members both the bread and the wine. But couldn't chemists analyze the bread and wine to see if it was changed to the body of the blood of Jesus Christ? That wouldn't be hard to do. It still smells like bread and wine. If you drink enough of the wine, would you get drunk? After all, it's just a matter of salvation. Then I found something else about the altar table. Every Catholic altar table has to have a relic, which is a, a part of a dead person installed into it to make the communion valid. The Catholic priest can use other tables under special clauses, such as one during war, but every Catholic altar you see in its churches has a relic installed in it. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that one of these relics, dead body parts, has to be present for the Mass to be valid. Pope John Paul II's relic is his blood in a glass case in uh, Kuklo, Poland. Do I believe in Christmas, the Mass of Christ? No, I don't. I believe in the one-time sacrifice of the Lamb of God who saved his people from their sins. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my fathers. Has America changed in their belief of Christmas from its beginning as a nation? Here's what America believed about Christmas before it became a nation. Public notice. The observation of Christmas having been deemed a sacrilege, the exchange of gifts and greetings, dressings and fine clothes, feastings and similar satanic practices are hereby forbidden, with the offender liable to a fine of five shillings. That was 17th century America. About 80 years later, it says churches of the Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodists were not open on December 15th. They did not accept the day as a holy day. That was in the New York Times, December 26, 1855. That was basically 18th century America. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, that was an interesting presentation uh, Don, and um, when you compare it to the short story I gave about uh, the Battle of Blood River, uh, one glaring difference is that, and this is why I believe the Boers realized a victory, was they made a covenant with God. Yes. But with 
Christmas, there's there's absolutely no covenant involved. Uh, we know in Christian identity that every single covenant that God made in the Bible was with the same race of people. And so maybe that's the reason why Christmas is so popular and is promoted by all kinds of uh, religious hucksters uh, because neither the holiday or its promoters, uh, the Catholic Church, has a covenant. That's right. Uh, there's, there's no uh, agreement with any specific people. It's inclusive of all races and creeds. Um, but as we know, the Bible is, is a book of exclusive uh, covenants. Right. In, in the beginning, go back 2,000 years ago, uh, when Jesus was born, they didn't have, they didn't celebrate Christmas the day he was born. And it didn't happen until about the, it's about the 4th century when they began, when the Roman Catholic Church, the word Catholic just means universalist, when they began to merge their beliefs with the pagans. Uh, that's when Christmas, their holiday started. And you know, the Catholic Church, you have the you have the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Catholic Church. The Eastern Catholic Church celebrates it on a different day. And when the Catholics first started to celebrate Christmas, they tried a couple other days before they settled on December 25th. December 25th is is the, is the birthday of a whole host of false gods, uh, the Mithras. If, if, if I can interject a couple of comments, I don't think that the Catholics ever, in, in, in the sense of there being a truly Christian Catholic church, ever really merged their beliefs with the pagans. I think that there was never a truly Christian Catholic church, but rather that when Christianity became lawful in Rome, when it was no longer persecuted, when it was allowed after the Edict of Tolerance under Constantine. Christianity was so popular with the people that pagan priests transformed themselves into Christian priests, which were later called Catholic. And, and the, uh, these pagan priests that transformed themselves into Christian priests were never Christian. They just continued their same pagan practices under the guise of Christianity. So Christianity, as it was practiced in the empire, was transformed into paganism with a Christian facade, a Christian face on it, Christian terminology. Some scripture reading, and, and most of that was, and still is today, rather superficial, that the, um, the word Catholic priest, or, or, or I'm sorry, the word Christian priest, the term, the phrase, if you search the writings of Tertullian, or um, any Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, any of the first, second, third century Christian writers, I can't find the phrase Christian priest in those writings. But in the fourth century, 
in Eusebius and later writers, we start to see the phrase Christian priest. True Christianity, we're all priests. Therefore, there is no need for such a designation or office. Yeah, I think we can thank uh, Constantine for getting the ball rolling, uh, who, who instituted that edict of toleration in 313, which basically declared the equality of all religions. It was, it was like the original universalism, which included Christianity, right. uh, which had been harshly persecuted for 300 years. Uh, but, you know, this kind of poses an interesting quandary for the average Christian uh, do you want more persecution, or are you willing to merge with pagan religions? <laughs> well, well, that was probably part of it, but once Christianity was um, tolerated, all of these pagan priests became Christian priests, when in reality, they were corrupting Christianity. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm not saying that Don was wrong in his assessment. He's certainly right but it's just a way of, of looking at the perspective. Um, from this point, looking backwards, it, it can be worded the way he worded it, but, but if we go back to that time and really examine what happened, the, um, that there was never really... A, there were true Christian assemblies in Rome. They were never Catholics. The word Catholic didn't have the meaning that it does today. The word Catholic had, a, had an original and a correct meaning. We are the real Catholics, to be honest. If we um, take the original use of the term, if you read the, the um, several early church writers that used the term Catholic in the second century, Irenaeus was one of them. And, and um, the term Catholic at that time meant somebody who received the tradition handed down in its entirety. And that's the root meanings of the term Catholic. Catholic comes from two Greek words, the first word being kata, and kata means down or according to. And the second word is hollis, and hollis means whole. And Catholicus means according to or of the whole. The word Catholic was coined because you had Jews that only accepted the Old Testament. And then you had the Marcionite Christians who only accepted portions of the New Testament. But the Catholics, in the original use of the term, accepted the entire scripture, Old Testament and New. That's why they were called Catholics. That's the original use of the term was good. It was later per perverted to mean universal. Yeah, historically, uh, the racial connotation didn't come until later. Right. And... Uh, 
original use of the term was referring to the whole scripture, the way that the faith was received. And if we really believe that we're the children of Israel, which we do and which we can prove historically, we are the original Catholics because we understand the application of the Old Testament and the New to our faith. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of the same way today. It's, it's a struggle for who is going to be the custodians of God's word. And the, the Catholic Church has almost been like a religious monopoly for centuries. They, they looked upon themselves as the only entity uh, worthy of representing God on earth. Um, monopoly was handed to them by Justinian. Who... Um, Changed the calendar and, and days and times, yeah. Uh, and, and changed God's law to church law, yes, we might say. But, um, you know, it, it's kind of an aberration of uh, 1 Corinthians 1.10, the, the unity um, verse where we all speak the same things. But it, what the Catholic Church did was not out of love, but out of fear and, and threat. And, and that's kind of what Don was speaking of through this institutionalized ritual of the Mass, which they have through sophistry and, and cleverly attached Christ to the Mass. But I think most everybody in Christian identity can agree it, it's not our kinsman redeemer that we regard as the Messiah. It, it's what um, the New Testament calls another Christ and, and speaks of another gospel. And that's the hyphenated Christianity and, and the, the corrupt Catholic church today. Um, and, and we can just as um, correctly uh, point to the Jew uh, with their involvement in Christmas as well. You mentioned merchandise in your opening statement. And nobody does it better than making merchandise of God during this time of year, right? Right. Oh, right. The Catholics, that they are the Roman Catholics are absolutely horrible for that at this time of year. Well, I know some Christian identity folks have a Catholic background, but our movement just does not have a mass um, other than what's no kind of pe callously passed off as Christmas. There, there is no mass. We should not have a mass. That, that's, that, that's something that um, the Lutherans maintained even that was the mass and a lot of the other traditional aspects of Roman Catholicism which we know from Scripture are wrong. Paul of Tarsus talks about the uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 he says, for I have received from the Lord that which I have also transmitted to you, that Lord Yahshua, in the night in which he was handed over, took wheat bread, and I'm paraphrasing the Christianity New Testament, took wheat bread. The word is the common use for a loaf of wheat bread. It's the common Greek word, artos. And giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. He's representing his broken body, as Pastor Elmore elucidated. This you do in remembrance of me. In other words, every time we break bread, 
as Christians, we do it in remembrance of him. He didn't say once a year or twice a year or every Sunday. He said, this you do in remembrance of me. So when we break bread like he broke bread, we do that in his memory because he, Yahweh God, gives us our sustenance and our life and our promise of life is only in Christ if indeed we are his children. And then, and then Paul goes on to say, in like manner he also took the cup along with the dinner, saying, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant is made. The covenant becomes, the new covenant becomes possible in the blood of God because he had to die for the children of Israel. That's, that's spelled out in the scripture. This is the new covenant in my blood. This you do as often as you may drink in remembrance of me. In other words, this you do as often as you may drink this wine. You do it in remembrance of me. You, you know, Paul himself explained this in, in the same manner. And he says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince or of the Lord until he should come. So every meal we eat and drink, we don't do this in a church. In that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul asked the Corinthians, do you not have houses to eat and to drink, in which to eat and to drink? So he's telling them to do this at home every time we eat the bread and drink a cup of wine. We declare the death of Christ. We should do it in his memory until he should come. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul um, substantiates this by saying, the cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? In other words, the cup is not the blood of Christ. When we share it with our brethren, it represents the fellowship of the blood of Christ. The wheat bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, in other words, Christ isn't the loaf of bread. All of us are. We're doing it because we are his kith and kin, redeemed by his blood. We do it in celebration of him. It's the fellowship that's the objective there. Between Christians, it's not, the, the, as Don pointed out, that the magical incantation that, that transforms the nature of the food and saves us, that is hocus-pocus. That is satanic hocus-pocus. So it represents the fellowship. Every time we eat and drink, Paul is telling us, we do it in the fellowship of Christ. Not just at Christmas in some church, or at Easter, or in, on Sunday in some church, that that is basically the, the um, professional priesthood has carved out a comfortable living for themselves by keeping people on the hook 
those people believing that somehow the priest saying the, the incantation properly is going to save them. Well, and we should always also distinguish between the body of Christ and Christ himself. Uh, now, Catholics call the Pope the vicar of Christ, which means he's, he's a substitute. He's in place of Christ on earth. And uh, we know that simply as um, uh, a false Christ. It says, many will come in my name. That's and so, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. A living God needs no replacement. Only a dead God does. That's all I wanted to say. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and uh, well, uh, we're, we're given uh, a prescription in how to conduct ourselves when we do a communion uh, by not being unworthily, by not doing it unworthily. We're, we're to do all things uh, in order and decently. Uh, it, it's not um, something to be taken frivolously, in other words. It's, it's not a time of revelry and, uh, uh, you know, uh, a party as uh, it's a debauchery as, as it's become. Um, which is an odd, uh, an odd couple, a coupling uh, between, on the one hand, uh, a religious rite of, um, of Catholicism, and on the other hand, uh, a, a secular uh, attitude where if it feels good, do it. And that includes... Um, um, all, all the uh, the fallout from the 60s, you know, of uh, uh, drugs, rock and roll, and sex, you know, but um, it, there's a cause and effect of everything, and um, just as surely as as we've uh, reaped what we've sown from the 60s, there there's a cause and effect uh, with decades of uh, of Christmas revelry as well. Uh, I don't think things are getting better uh, as each year, as the clock ticks on, of, of Christmas being anything of virtue. Uh, quite the contrary. It, it seems to be uh, uh, going further into decadence. And, um, and there was something I'm, I might have missed, but... Um, uh, Pastor Elmore, there, there is also something behind why uh, every Christmas Eve, uh, if you turn on your TV at midnight uh, on your, your major channels, you see the Midnight Mass. Right. Could you explain that? Okay. The Midnight Mass. Why is there a Midnight Mass? I always wondered that as a youngster. Um, I remember watching on television as a young man this Midnight Mass. I wondered why do they celebrate it at midnight? It would seem to me it'd make more sense for them to leave the service earlier and then the people could get a good night's sleep. The next morning would be a full day of opening presents, eating a big meal, 
and in many cases traveling to relatives and friends uh, home to celebrate the day. For three days since the winter solstice, the winter solstice is December 21st, for three days since December 21st, the amount of daylight has not increased. It has remained the same. It is at the lowest amount of time of daylight in the entire year. The sun has died. The question is, will it be resurrected? So why do they have the Mass at midnight? I couldn't find the answer on the Internet, but I think I know. Midnight was the time that the firstborn of all Egyptians died. Midnight was not the God of Israel's time. His day started at sunset. It was three days after the winter solstice that the amount of daylight begins to increase. That shows that the sun has been resurrected. They celebrate this fact at midnight on the day that the daylight begins to increase until the summer solstice. That day is December 25th, which is the birthday of Mithras, Baal, Tammuz, Horus, Apollyon, and so forth. When I was young, when my family celebrated Christmas, I was told it was the birthday of Jesus not the birthday of all the false gods. When I was in my 20s, I discovered that the Roman Catholic Church had actually used a couple of other days as its birthday before they settled on December 25th. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church, I learned, celebrates today on a day in January. I thought, if the church just picked out a day for his birthday... Why would they pick a day that the pagans said was their God's birthday? Or why hadn't their scholars found the real birthday of Jesus? It wouldn't be that hard. They could learn when John the Baptist was born from his father's course that he served in the temple. And when he found his birthday, then all they had to do was add six months and they would find when our Savior was born. Or they could just stop and think when was taxes given and when was the sheep uh, taken away and not out in the uh, in the uh, pasture. His birthday was in the fall. So that's why they have the Midnight Mass. Every Christmas you will see, which is really what the Mass of Christ is. When you say Merry Christmas, you're saying Merry Mass of Christ. I don't believe in a Mass of Christ. I think it's uh, abomination. They celebrate it daily, and the death of Jesus Christ happened one time, and that was all that was needed according to the book of Hebrews. One sacrifice was sufficient. It was accepted by God when he was resurrected from the dead. And that was for his people, his way he died. I like what you said about, uh, and I thank you for the slight correction that you gave to me. And I, I appreciate what you said about the new covenant in the blood, because the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Everything ties together. And I've always wondered, uh, Christmas is supposed to be about the birth of Jesus Christ, but yet you have this special Mass for Jesus Christ, and the Mass looks at his death. 
Uh, it's very strange how everything works out when you with these false religions. Well, well, um, I apologize. The, the the correction was really just a correction of a perspective that is common in even in Christian identity to imagine that at one time there was a legitimate Roman Catholic Church that absorbed paganism. I don't, I don't know if that came from um, Alexander Hislop, but but I think it was Bertrand Compare that put it very well when he said that after the time of Constantine and the Edict of Toleration, that the pagan priests took down the signs off their temples that said Apollo or, or Venus and, and put up signs that said St. Peter or St. Mary, and they kept the same practices, yet they put a Christian facade and Christian language over it. And, and, and um, that's the better historical perspective because while there were indeed there were many legitimate Christian assemblies before the time of Constantine, which, as we all know, were being persecuted. After the time of Constantine, when Christianity was made lawful, many of the Christian bishops were legitimate and had come from those persecutions, but many Christian priests and bishops were not legitimate. They were just pagans that changed their signs. I agree with that. And, and, and that's, a, that's an allegory that Compre used to describe what had happened, and, and it certainly is. What we don't see, I, I can't find the phrase Christian priest in use before, I could be wrong, but I don't find it before the time of Eusebius and Constantine. Christian priest was a phrase which started appearing after Constantine, after the, fourth, after the beginning of the Edict of Toleration in the 4th century. So, so that's, um, Christianity was basically usurped by the pagan Romans. I think I said that I've given you uh, pastors and uh, uh, prophets and uh, evangelicals, and, and, but he never said priest. <laughs> And I think it's because uh, a pastor, the, the word for pastor is shepherd. And and when you think of a priest, it, it's more of um, uh, a political power, especially the way the Catholic Church exercises it. That, that's, um, you know, in, in, in the gospel and, and in the letters of Paul and, and the other apostles, it's clear that we have men who, who are gifted by God to um, shepherd the pasture. So they are called pastors, and that's where the word comes from, and, and that's fine. But um, we're all kings and priests. Once we accept Christ and, and um, realize we should rule our households with the law of God. We're all kings and priests on our own, and we need no man to rule over us except Christ, who is God. So, so that's, 
the um, the idea of Christian priests. No, even even the wisest of kings and priests have um, courts and advisors. No man is an island. That's a very true adage. We should all look to those in our community who have um, gifts that have been granted by God and which have demonstrated themselves to be true and, and follow the examples of those people or the teachings of those people. That, that's fine. That's the role of a pastor. And, and um, that, that, that's to, for, for the, um, the truth of the gospel where it lies in, 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 and, and where it should be exercised in that function. The priests have exchanged that. The professional pagan priesthood in Rome exchanged the legitimate roles for their own role as priest, and they exchanged the, the true function of the ecclesia with rituals, which are empty. The rituals are vain, but those rituals claiming um, certain biblical verses necessitate the, the, the performance of the rituals is their way to capture and rule over men and, and to legitimize their own function. So, so it's, it's never the, 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 the Christian priesthood, which we have from Rome, has never been legitimate. Not for one day. Yeah, there is Revelation um, 1 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God. Um, but as we know, the book of Revelation is prophecy. And so that's probably referring in a prophetic sense to a future kingdom where we will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Well, well right, absolutely. But knowing that he's our only legitimate king and, and priest after the order of Melchizedek, we should seek to pattern ourselves after that now. And, and, and therefore, what, what, what can any man performing a ritual do for us who is, whether it be baptism or... Um, I forget the name of that ritual the priests do, the prayer they say over the dead, and, and all these seven sacraments they have, which they say that you have to achieve in order to get your salvation, and if you don't do it by this rigid um, schedule and procedure, you're not going to be saved because you didn't fulfill the seven sacraments, right? So, so that, that, well, how could that improve our standing with Christ, according to Scripture. Of course it can't, but they use that, that. That's the systemization of deception. And anybody in the Catholic Church that goes through that systemized schedule of rituals will be, quote-unquote, saved, right? And, and that's all a deception. It, it's always been a deception. And I believe that the... Um, the rituals were created by the professional priesthood for the benefit of the professional priesthood. They were never legitimate Christians, ever. It's what I've always kind of called people control. 
Right. That's the Nicolaitans, the people conquerors. As uh, Paul mentioned in Romans 13, um, there is a delegation of authority, but uh, in verse 3, he says, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And we can see how that has been reversed, uh, uh, so much so that uh, in, in modern times, it, it's almost as if now we're calling good evil and evil good, <laughs> even the churches. Well, well, what we should discuss, I think, is what Christians can do, real Christians, I mean, not Judeo-Christians. I, I like to say sometimes, I don't say it often on podcasts, but I say it more in, in person to people. Paul became, as a Greek to the Greeks, and as a Jew to the Jews, or a Judean to the Judeans. We sometimes, I believe, have to become, as a Judeo, to the Judeos in order that we may possibly save some of the Judeos. So that's the way I look at it, and, and we should. And, and I tried to make the point last night without saying those words, that, that um, what, where Paul states, in, in, uh, I'm going to quote three passages from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, if one of the unbelieving not a true Christian, a Judeo-Christian should be accounted by us as one of the unbelieving because they're basically mixed up in some sort of um, Judeo-paganism. It's not Judeo-Christianity. If one of the unbelieving invites you and you wish to go, eat all that is being said before you by no means making an inquiry on account of conscience. In other words, you could eat the food without worrying about where it came from. Be found inoffensive to both Judeans and Greeks, and those Greeks, Paul talks about, there have to be pagans, and, but the Judeans are not Jews, and to the assembly of Yahweh, just as I also please all in all things, not seeking for the advantage of myself. In other words, he's not going to these Judeans, these Greeks, to, to get any reward or to um, exalt himself. And he says, but that of the many, or the advantage of the many, in order that they may be preserved. So Paul became as a Judean to the Judeans so that he could save some of his kinsmen according to the flesh, which is those who he shows concern for in Romans chapter 9. And, and he became, as a Greek to the Greeks, he also had a Greek classical education, and he could talk to the pagans on their own terms and, and show them the folly of their ways in order to try to bring them to Christ. He went and dealt with these pagans or these Judeans that were, that were Judaized in order to bring them to the truth of the way in Christ. And, and we have to do the same thing. And that's why I say, when your family has a Christian gathering, a Christmas gathering, that's usually the only time of year you get to see your whole family. So you go to that gathering, but you don't engage in the, um, the idolatry and the covetousness and, and, and the, the things going on there. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't recommend that. But you go and attempt to witness to them the truth.
And, and that would be my recommendation to anyone. Now, now, there are circumstances, I think, Mark, that you mentioned where we probably shouldn't go, and, and that's fine. But we could find somewhere else to go. And, and that's because Christmas, even though we despise everything that Christmas stands for, it is a good time to get people to talk about Christ. Well, uh, I don't think it is really the best time of year for families to get together. I mean, it's the middle of winter. And uh, uh, every year it's this rat race of, of people uh, going hither and thither, whether it's on the roads or uh, flying. And uh, airports are a, a big headache. And uh, uh, it's a, a, an isolated time of the year that Jews especially can manipulate and cash in on. Now, I, I think, why not uh, families take it upon themselves to take a four- or five-month window when the weather is nice, like spring and summer, um, where it would be much more difficult for the Jew to try and manipulate people uh, in, in what they do. Uh, my wife just recently attended a a funeral of her favorite uncle in um, in the Midwest, and um, she met aunts and um, cousins that she hadn't seen for decades, and, and they got to talking about how nice it would be for just the women folk uh, to get together. And so you know what they did? Uh, they um, they they rented this uh, uh, guest house that's on a lake and uh, people rent it for special occasions and there are about well, about a dozen women that are all have the, the same last names or uh, uh, was their maiden names and uh, and they had a family get together and it was wonderful and they they loved it and there wasn't the the similar trappings that always accompany uh, this time of year. So I think it's somewhat of a mistake pigeonholing our people into thinking that, well, this is the only time of year that we can do this because of tradition or that uh, there, there's, there's no other alternatives. Uh, well, of course there is. And it's just people taking the initiative uh, to do it. Well, well, I'm not really talking about encouraging your family to gather. I'm talking about the um, the, the virtual um, reality in, in many families is that the only time they get together, and these are Judeo-Christian families, the only time they all get together very often is Christmas. It, it's just the reality of the situation in many families. And unfortunately, it's a, 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 the slippery slope that I was alluding to earlier that, that really has very few uh, advantageous benefits, uh, especially spiritually, uh, to, to the members of the family. Now, if I could just maybe relate a little bit of my own personal experience, because I think you were addressing uh, our kin 
in the um, your article, the perennial struggle, well, because well. so many times when our our people hear the Christian identity message, they also become aware of God's law, right? Right. And so this becomes every year what the heck do I do about my family that's still practicing this god-awful pagan ritual, you know? And, uh, and I, I struggled with that myself. So uh, I can identify uh, exact, I can empathize with, with everybody in our community that, that goes through the same thing. And uh, it, it is not an, an easy thing to proselytize the, the truth as one may think uh, for one reason or another. They may be a, a neophyte in, in uh, identity studies or they're not very articulate or, or one thing or another. I know with my own, and here's the only reason why I attended family gatherings, uh, much to my angst and, and frustrations is God's law to honor your mother and father. See, I had to, I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Uh, and, uh, and so I did honor my mother and father on Christmas. Uh, on Christmas Day, it, it was rather awkward. They still clung to their uh, opening presents and, and all the other uh, ridiculous things they do. Uh, well, I just sat there kind of awkwardly. And, and I had tried in previous years to tell them the truth. But like so many cases, Bill, um, they don't have ears to hear. And, and so, yeah, there are instances where I think it's justified that you have every right to reject going to a family gathering if uh, that family gathering includes race mixers or mongrels, um, homosexuals, um, heretics. Well, well, heretic. and that's well, well, the race mixers, the mongrels, the people that break God's law. What we can't show approval of that behavior and, and appearing at a table with those people we are basically approving of their behavior by accepting those people at our table. Right. And I think you mentioned uh, in your last uh, commentary last night, sitting at the table of demons. Well, right. if people are waiting to sit next to uh, a gargoyle or uh, some monster looking character, uh, that's, going to be a long wait, you know, but yet they'll sit next to a race mixer, right? Well, well right, and sitting next to a race mixer, they're, they're basically sitting with someone who has surrendered themselves to Satan, and they're sharing a table with Satan. You don't break bread with what God considers an abomination. That, that's going to be a um, topic of my next Friday program in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because there's some language in Paul there in his statements, which has been totally glossed over in, in nearly every translation, what, where um, Paul says that many of us are sick and many of us are dying, 
because we did not distinguish the body of Christ. The body of Christ at the fellowship of the wheat bread and the cup, the body and blood of Christ are really the people sitting around the table. And if you don't distinguish the body of Christ, then we are going to continue to be chastised. And that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's glossed over in translation because of a um, failure to properly translate certain Greek words. Well, like you said, we are to love our brethren, um, but we have to harmonize that with with other passages uh, because there are conditions. Uh, and 1 John 4.20 says, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And I think that's what you were probably referring to. Um, but John, back then, John must have known that this is a real pressing issue uh, in how we love God and how we love our brethren. Uh, and, and he addressed it, in the, he kept coming back and forth in several chapters uh, related to that theme. So, you know, how do we love God? Well, in 1 John 5, 2, he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So there's the law. We love our brethren the same way we love God, uh, not by mere affection, but through the law. And um, it, it's certainly not unconditional love um, any more than like uh, forgiveness without repentance or restitution. Uh, we love our race, and I think this was a, a generalized uh, statement in loving our brethren. It, it wasn't um, case-specific, uh, but it, it has to be in harmony with other scriptures. Um, and um, that's where maybe perhaps in um, Matthew... 10, if I can go there, um, that's more familial uh, than a, a, just a generic obligation. Matthew 10, 35 says, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's pretty strong words um, when it gets down to faith. <laughs> and uh, well, that's, that's, it goes to the core of family relationships. And that's why last night uh, I talked about a thin line that Christians must walk, that we can go to 
the dinners, the social functions of the unbelievers. And when we do, we should have in mind the intention of bringing the truth of the gospel to the people that we speak to. Now, if we go to family functions to make family happy and set aside God while we are there, then we are doing ourselves and our God a disservice. We are becoming sycophants to our family, and, and, and we are putting our families before God, and, and we should never do that. We should go to the family functions with the intention of being lights of truth if indeed we believe we know the truth. And, and what our family thinks of us is immaterial. And more often than not, we will be rejected, but at least we've made an attempt to reach out to our kids and kin. Well, yeah, and um, so so I'm agreeing with you, but I'm saying that if if barring the presence of race mixers and and homosexuals and other wicked people, because we can't have communion with wicked people, then that then barring that, we should go to the family Christmas gathering. But we should go with the intention of spreading the truth of Christ. And and that would be the ideal circumstance. Uh, however, uh, I see that kind of Norman Rockwell picture of Christmas as a, a dwindling memory. <laughs> and uh, well, that's uh, true. That's true. There, it, it's it's becoming more and more secularized. Uh, where, um, you know, what we remember uh, Christmas from times past, uh, especially as a child, uh, it it was just, um, I I grew up in kind of a leave it to beaver uh, upbringing. And uh, I I don't think that exists anymore. Um, It's uh, been so commercial. A lot, um, and, and primarily um, through the, the schools, the public schools. I would say also when when I was in grade school, we had Christmas pageants. Uh, no more, you know, no more, um, because of the secularization of, um, or, I, or should I say, the um, the Judaization of Christmas. And um, I had uh, mentioned to you on the phone that um, uh, the, the Jews have a heavy hand in, in all of this. Uh, the, the reason for the, the season is uh, the love of money for some. <laughs> and, uh, and they play both sides of the, uh, of the fence. Uh, you know, there are some people that really love the um, the Hallmark Channel because it's so um, family orientated, and and this time of year, all it got 
our uh, Christmas movies. And um, but uh, when you look at the credits, who's the executive producer? Uh, who's the director? Uh, who's some of the actors? Well, they're all Jews. And and of course they interject that um, their their little. Uh, propaganda sound bites, you know, that baby Jesus was a Jew and, uh, and all the other things that uh, make Christmas uh, really a, a, a holy day for, uh, for Jews. And uh, it, it, it may be problematic, might be a, a time for some of these Orthodox rabbis and their followers, uh, since it celebrates uh, the wrongful birth date of Jesus, whom the real Jesus, whom they hate with a passion. So their rabbinic regard for um, Christmas and, and Christmas Eve uh, in Judaism is regarded as an accursed time. And, uh, you know, not, not too many people know this, but there's a rabbinic tradition of uh, refraining from even marital relations on Christmas Eve <laughs> because according to the founder of Hasidic Judaism, to conceive a child on that night will result in the birth of either an apostate or a pimp. Wow. And uh, one of the most prominent rabbinic customs commonly observed on Christmas Eve is to abstain from uh, the Torah, uh, which is really the Talmudic Torah, any study of it, uh, as there's an anxiety that one's Talmud study may unwillingly serve as merit for Jesus' soul, corresponding to the teachings that... Uh, Talmudic studies give respite to the souls of the wicked. In other words, they consider Jesus wicked. Um, but therefore, you know, the Jews have no problem presenting another Christ, a pagan Christ, which they're more than happy to promulgate, uh, which is anathema to the biblical Christ, the real Jesus. Um, you know, they're all for the pagan sun god Christ, but not for the kinsman redeemer of the white race. Well, uh, most of the Catholics that I've met in my adult life are non-whites and only love the little baby Jesus and the young white virgin. And their religion is religion of lust for the little baby and the young white virgin. And, and that's true of all the um, the Mexicans and, and, and squat monsters, the South Americans and people like that that I've ever met. And, and even a lot of the European Catholics love the little baby Jesus, but really don't want anything to do with the grown man. Sure, and that's marginalizing his three-year ministry. That's not important. It's just the cute little cuddly baby in the manger scene. Right. That's what people can Google. Or, or lusting over the virgin. Yeah. Well, which is fertility cult. Um, 
covetous fertility cult mentality, basically. That's as old as the devil. Ellen, uh, I think there's a, a in recent years a strong competition competitor uh, to Christmas, and that's Hanukkah. Um, and I just uh, discovered uh, something about that um, uh, this last week, where uh, Hanukkah is a, a Talmudic holiday that's uh, kind of celebrated cursorily or in a, a hasty manner uh, in the Israeli state over in the Middle East. However, it's observed in the United States as competition for Christmas. That's how Jews look at it. Uh, in order to symbolically assert the supremacy of the Jewish people over the rest of humanity. And this article I read said the secret of Hanukkah, Hanukkah is, was disclosed by a rabbi Meyer revealing a secret known only to a few that lighting the Hanukkah menorah does not commemorate the victory of the biblical Maccabees. That's just the window dressing for the Goyim. The arcane traditional doctrine of the sages of the Talmud concerning Hanukkah is that it commemorates God's delight in the Jewish people themselves and their vainglorious celebrations. The secret teaching of Hanukkah is that God supposedly provided a mythical eight days of oil, not as a means of facilitating a victory or of guaranteeing a successful completion of a sacred duty, but rather as a sign of his continuing adoration of the Jewish people, which all the rest of us are supposed to emulate. And as a matter of fact, we do, if your Christianity is hyphenated with Judeo. Uh, whenever we allow a menorah to be erected where a nativity scene is banned. And uh, Hanukkah is, is Talmudism's principal weapon uh, right after the Holocaust for injecting the religion of the Talmud into the civic life of our, our nation during the month of December, at a time when Christianity and its symbols, such as the nativity scenes, are increasingly marginalized or banned completely from the public square in favor of menorah lightings, or Santa Claus and the collective jingle of cash registers and credit card machines. The lower Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are made to descend during the Christ Mass season, the higher the menorah. And Jewish self-worship, it represents rises. And if you follow uh, recent developments in the Roman Catholic Church, it has stooped, lowered itself to the demands of Jewry. And both Jews and Catholics are anti-Christ in promoting the wickedness of this universalist Christ. In the, in the religion of Judaism, the, the Hanukkah menorah is the symbol of the supreme position which Jews supposedly occupy in God's eyes. Um, 
it's, it's not a symbol of a biblical occurrence. It's a man-made Talmudic tradition intended for self-idolatry. It represents the victory not of the Maccabees over the pagans, but of the selective memory of the rabbis over history. So in other words, it's a dual purpose is to destroy us and to make a handsome profit at the same time. Um, just this last week, um, in the news, Obama, um, you know, it's, it's funny on these, uh, these Jewish holidays, uh, in 2003, uh, President George Bush launched the invasion uh, of Iraq on Purim, the, the religion of Judaism's unholy Talmudic season of revenge on the Gentiles. Well, was that a coincidence? Uh, you know, war, as some Jews said, is the Jews' harvest. And then, just last week, Obama chose the first 24 hours of Hanukkah, um, Judaism's Talmudic season of self-worship, to announce a major policy change in favor of communist Cuba. Is that coincidence? Or, as many of us know, communism is Jewish. So, as part of Obama's deal with Cuban President Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, uh, this Jew, Alan Gross, uh, an intelligent asset of the CIA, was released from a Cuban prison and all this last week has been lionized in the media as some kind of saint. Well, masquerading as a rabbi, Obama of the supposedly secular United States of America gave a sermon in the synagogue of Satan disguised as the White House, wherein he stated that Hanukkah commemorates victory over repression and the redemption of captives. Well, this Redemption doesn't apply to Palestinians detained without trial for years, or World War II revisionist historians such as David Irving or Ernst Zundel, who languished in prisons for months and even years. And at the same insistence of uh, the Hanukkah Hellions, who Obama regards as paradigms of liberty. Well, there is no separation of synagogue and state in these United States. Church and state, yes. Synagogue and state, obviously not. Well, Jews ruling over us, I think, is God's judgment for believing a lie, that they are God's chosen people, and Jesus, or even baby Jesus, was a Jew. You know, with presidents like Bush and Obama, and a Congress, the best Jewish money can buy, that is, Congress is Israeli-occupied territory. The bloody repression of Christ's people is, I think, right on the horizon, if not already here. But we need to educate and inform our fellow Americans, and if need be, at a family Christmas gathering. Uh, but it makes makes it less likely that, that Bush Republicans or Obama Democrats who, who 
keep voting for these antichrists into office can turn this dark and hate-filled religion of Jewish tyranny and vengeance into some kind of liberty-loving, warm and fuzzy Orwellian festival of light that will eventually replace Christmas altogether. I mean, for years, we've been going down this slippery slope of an ecumenical one-world government with a one-world religion uh, observing an annual winter holiday with the Jewish seal of approval. And if we can't vote out the new world order, what makes anybody think Christmas can be salvaged even though there's never been anything to save? And so there's, in my opinion, a definite um, a Jewish dialectic, a Marxist dialectic um, going on where they're playing both sides of the fence in order so that they have uh, a synthesis or uh, an end product of all the cause and effects that they've put into place so that the only thing left is a Jewish holiday or a one-world religion, if you will. Esther Elmore, are you yes. still with us? I am. Oh, do you have any comments? I think Mark did a very good job explaining. I think that's where we're at. It's like when we had the House of Israel way back then, uh, the vast majority of them worshipped the wrong god. They had the wrong temples. They had the wrong priest. They had the wrong law. Uh, Elijah came, and uh, he didn't compromise with them. He said, You're, you, we can't be of two opinions. Which one is our God? He had a contest. That would be great if it happened to America today, because I think America is very similar to the way the House of Israel was back in those old days. Well, well it will happen, and it's going to be fire all, all over the place. Right. It'll be my reading of Revelation chapter 19 is correct. And that's our hope. It's going to happen, and God made a covenant with our fathers. He loved our fathers. And he blessed them, and he blessed their seed, and we are the seed of those fathers. I don't know why Christians throw away the covenant. Uh, they give it to other people, or say other people are the covenant people. Uh, they're liars. Christ said they were liars. Uh, but I th I think that they America worships another god and it's getting very close I think to the end. Uh I think what Mark said was correct. Um Christmas is a false holiday. It's of the it's of the other Jesus. And um it's based on paganism, but still it's the other Jesus. They're trying to get the whole world to worship in the same religion. Hope has had the people of all faiths and the big names in the, in the Protestant and other religions here come to him and acknowledge their support that they're going to go back to Rome. It's unbelievable, but I think Rome's going to be a big part in the 
and the false religion. You know, Bill, um, this kind of dovetails with <clears throat> walking the walk. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and and uh, begs the question uh, from Acts two thirty seven, men and brethren, what shall we do? And uh, when our people come to to Christian identity, uh, they they get so excited. It's such a revelation. It's it's really good news to to those who get it. Um, and the first thing they want to do is is tell their their friends and family. Uh, if I could just this is something anecdotal to our discussion tonight. Uh, I have a prison ministry, and I got a letter Friday uh, from a, a prisoner in Missouri, and he's having uh, difficulties uh, getting Christian identity accepted uh, into his uh, prison where he's at. And uh, he's gone through all the paperwork and all that, and when all else fails, I tell him, well, just do what the disciples did, you know, word of mouth, talk to people. Uh, and uh, in this letter, he wanted me to call the, the prison. didn't tell me who, whether to call the chaplain or the warden or whoever, but he, he also wanted me to call his mother. And, uh, and so I called her today. And, uh, you know, she, she has somewhat of a... Um, a racial consciousness, being in Missouri, where um, these things are happening in uh, Ferguson and um, in St. Louis is one of the most violent uh, uh, black crime areas in the country now. Uh, she she understands the uh, the thuggery and criminality uh, that is inherent in the black race. She hasn't seen her son in three years, but she's talked to him on the phone. And uh, this guy is like a lot of us who, when first hearing the message, is on fire with the ra racial message. And, uh, and she says she just can't take it all in. <laughs> you know, and, and she resents him trying to proselytize his 16-year-old um, brother and younger daughter. Um, and I can understand that. And this goes to what kind of uh, attitude or spirit do we have in delivering uh, we are Israel and the Jews are not. Uh, I think that's the issue or the problem in a nutshell that it, it's not what we say, but how we say it sometimes. And uh, in my own case, um, uh, my, my own parents went to their graves uh, rejecting the message. In fact, um, one day my dad, let's just, oh boy, was I happy about that. Uh, and I had all my ducks in a row, and, and I was ready to go. Well, you know, I, I don't, as I recall, we didn't get any further than 20 minutes. <laughs> and my dad said, from now on, 
there will be no further discussion of religion and politics under my roof. And I was crushed. And I think that's what you were talking about, Bill, in the perennial struggle, is that we have the truth of Christian identity and that we just have to be patient uh, and that not everybody is going to get it because it's God. We plant the seed. He does the sprouting. Right. And we set the example, though. See, our, our Christian walk is, is part of the compelling evidence in which people will want to hear more. And that includes the truth about Christmas. Well, well, right, and, and, and maybe it would be good to show up at those family gatherings that have sexual deviance and, and race mixers, and as soon as one, one of the fags or, or race mixers shows up, excuse yourself. I'm sorry I can't stay here any longer. I can't accept fornication or sodomy, so I'm going to leave. And you leave. That, that's your best witness. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you di didn't say uh, if there's a, a a queer there that you have to speak like a queer or have an effeminate voice. <laughs> but, right, but that might throw an extra twist. See all things to all people doesn't mean, you know. Not, well, no, being things to all people means talking to people, in, in, in my estimation, it means talking to people on their terms about the truth of God. It doesn't mean being a sycophant. Like I said last night, Paul did not become a devil to the devils. He well, I think it's the devils. It's being smarter. Uh, and, and the only way we can be smarter about things is having the mind of Christ and putting on the whole armor of God. And... Christmas goes kind of directly to uh, Romans 12, 2, I think, where it says, be not conformed to the world. Right. In other words, that fits perfectly with Christmas. Don't, don't conform yourself to it, uh, because the next phrase says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. And, and that proves, the renewing of your mind, which is the mind of Christ, proves what is the, the perfect and acceptable uh, will of God. And that's what we want to do is God's will, not ours. Absolutely. But, but I believe it's God's will that we engage these Judeo-Christians and, and try to show them a better way and not give up and, and fight that fight. Well, Christ came from the sinners and, uh, and we're there for him too. But like I said, we don't cast our pearls before swine or give that which is holy to the dogs. Um, after so many times of um, uh, of giving them the good news, well, I mean, right? They shake the dust from your shoes and you move on to somebody that might want to hear it. Exactly. Yes, you do. Exactly. I, I um I wrote the perennial struggle. In, in answer to um, many 
identity Christians that I know who, who as soon as they learn Christian identity and as soon as they realize that they should be keeping the law of God, that they attempt to put those things into effect in their lives, which is good, but right away they want to beat their brethren over the head with it and, and, and play the Pharisee over them and, and force them. And, and when their brethren, their kin, their brothers, sisters, mothers, uncles, nieces, nephews, don't go along with it, that, that they just um, reject them entirely and, and sit home and, and be disgruntled and sit alone. Rather than, and, and that's, I spoke a couple of weeks ago with Brother Ryan about balancing positive Christianity and negative Christianity. And I phrased um, negative Christianity, in, and, and it's good. Like I said, you need both battery cables to make the car go, right? The negative aspect of Christian identity is what the blacks are doing to us, what the Jews are doing to us, what the government's doing to us, what, what Hollywood's doing to us. That, that's, we need to know that stuff. But we can't ignore the positive side of Christianity. We have to balance the two. And the positive side is loving your brother and, and, and um, being edifying to your community and the people around you to be that shining light on the hill so that you want to make people want to know why you are like you are. And, and that's done by setting an example. Yeah, we don't want to be Bible thumpers. We don't want to be annoying as Jehovah Witnesses knocking on our door. Um, there's a big difference between uh, being legalistic, like a Pharisee, and uh, being lawful. Right. And, and that's all we want to do is, is follow God's law. And uh, in order for somebody to understand what we're talking about, uh, we sometimes have to humble ourselves a little. And rather, we're not talking down to people. We want to get people to talk with us right. so that they're explaining to themselves uh, the wisdom uh, of what we're conveying to them. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Absolutely. But, but we... <laughs> What we have to um, what we have to bear the message and and that that's let God do with it what He will. It, it's um, we don't want to be the servant that hides our talent in the dirt. What we want to take that talent and try to get three or four more. Well, we are watchmen, and uh, that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. The the watchman warn people and uh, and that's uh, a part of our duty uh, I think it's Ezekiel 3 18 20 somewhere in there where we're supposed we're obligated to to warn uh, the wicked uh, because if we don't then his blood will be on us so we have an obligation not only to inform but if somebody's uh, way out there we're it behooves us to to follow that order in um, Ezekiel. Uh, likewise, uh, 
Matthew 18 affords us um, the opportunity of due process. If there is contention or uh, a disagreement among brethren, we have due process to bring forward an issue uh, which you can reconcile in an amiable way. Again, it all boils down to uh, uh, our spirit, you know, or our attitude, and uh, just basically dealing with people the way we would want to be dealt with. Absolutely. Well, well, I thank you, gentlemen, for being here tonight, and 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 Mark for your informative piece about Blood River, and Pastor Elmore for his very informative. Um, description of what is called the Mass, which really is a pagan blood ritual. There's no doubt. Well, it was a real pleasure being on with you again, Bill. Thank you. Very Pastor? good. I, I appreciated the discussion. Very, very good. Well, well thank you, and, and praise Christ. He, he's the reason for every season. Every day. Very good. Thank you.